of prayer. Uh, my Father, I just uh, praise you for the gift of your word, how in- incredibly exciting it is um, to, to delve deeply in, in it and, and uh, Father, to see you and uh, to see you not only in, in the print and the text, but to see you in history and, and to see that in Christ and then to see that here and now in our lives and our experience. I pray, Father, that um, you would cause us to... Um, have a faith that comes not from any other source other than directly from a walk, an intense walk with you. I love you so much, Father, for Christ and how he continues to bring the same message to us today. It's in him we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of open our time in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. I'm going to try not to go as fast as I did last week, but there, there is a lot of ground to cover and uh, I'm kind of going to just begin just with the, the physical, um, just a physical look at the Pool of Siloam. And I kind of wanted to begin with this map of Jerusalem. And uh, at, at the time of Isaiah, Isaiah is written under the names of four kings. So Isaiah prophesied under Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those four kings, a lot of the book is devoted to these last two, Ahaz and Hezekiah. So a famous scripture you're familiar with. You remember when um, uh, Isaiah has two sons. Now, this is one of those silly, like, kind of Bible trivia questions, but I love this one. Do y'all, do y'all know Isaiah's two sons' names? You know what they are? I knew Jason knew one of them because it's the longest name in the Bible. It's, it's Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And if you're familiar with the virgin prophecy of, of, of Isaiah 7 where it says, before the, the, a ver- Behold, a virgin will be with a child and before he's old enough to know the difference between good and evil. That initial prophecy is actually about Maher, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This boy that is Isaiah's, going to be Isaiah's son. But it also reflects in this coming Messiah, this Christ, um, as the Gospels are going to bring out. He has another son named Shira Jashub. Um, the first names mean, his name means a remnant shall return. Um, kind of foreshadowing the captivity that they're, they're anticipating. And Mahershalal Hashbaz, that name means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And, and yeah, I know everyone laughed. You're very immature people. Um, what that, what that means is, man, the treasure's coming soon. Um, th- this is, this is coming. Um, but it's, they're both anticipating a conflict. Um, and so in Isaiah chapter 7, I'm, I need to kind of rush through these two accounts. And Isaiah chapter 36, these are the two historical points in the book of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters long. Most of it is prophecy. Most of it deals with prophecies regarding these, these four kings. But there are two historic sections. The first deals with uh, conflict with um, the northern kingdoms of Israel and Aram, or Syria, these two kingdoms. And that is going to be a conflict with King Ahaz. So King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 meets these kings, these two kings, um, on the aqueduct that flows from the Gion Spring, which is called the upper pool there, down to the pool of Siloam. Now this aqueduct, um, and I'm jealous of something. I know Van, I'm going to share a video. Van and Marvin have been here, have actually walked through, not this aqueduct, but the, the following one that I'm going to show you. And some of you have seen this in person. I would love to sometime, but I'm just going to go off what I know about this. 
This original aqueduct is probably the aqueduct that David used at one point to get inside of the city. Um, its purpose was to run from the Gion Spring, which and the word Gion means to burst forth. It's just this, this powerful cold water that flowed from the Temple Mount. And it was used to water this valley um, right here. And so if you can imagine just streams coming down from this to water crops, and then it would end in the Pool of Siloam uh, down here at the bottom. The problem is um, Jerusalem is a well-defended city. It has good, it has, it's built up on a mount. It's got walls. It's a place that you can defend. And the weakest part of a city under siege, what do you, the only thing you need to do to a city under siege is what? Cut off the water supply. That's all you need to do, and you have won the war. And the problem with this, this setup that they had is that this was accessible. And so both in Isaiah chapter 7 and in Isaiah 36 and 37, when King Hezekiah meets Sennacherib, the commander, the field commander, in both instances, they meet their enemy at this aqueduct and at this pool, this Gion pool. This is where this prophecy is given. The virgin will be with son and you will name him Emmanuel. The coming Emmanuel will come. And so this, this was the situation. So Hezekiah um, comes in and he digs a second, second aqueduct because of the danger with the first one. The first one could be accessed by the enemy. So he goes through and two teams dig from either end. And we're, we're talking about um, a quarter of a mile. This is roughly a quarter of a mile anticipating a siege through solid bedrock, they start digging from either end. And you see this tunnel that kind of weaves underground through here. Um, here's a picture um, of, of that tunnel. Not a place for a claustrophobic person to go. This is tight. Somebody with broad shoulders like I have could not fit <laughs> in this tunnel. Um, in the middle of this tunnel is the... Um, um, Siloam stone, this was discovered, um, I believe, in the 1800s. Is that right? About, about by the 1800s. Um, in this carving in the middle of the tunnel, kind of closer to the Siloam side of it. And the inscription reads, the tunnel, and this is the story of the tunnel, while the axes were against each other and while three cubits were left to the cut. This is a tough thing to translate. Obviously, I can't translate it anyway. Um, and on the day that the tunnel being finished, the stonecutters struck each man towards his counterpart, axe against axe. Water flowed from the source of the pool, 1,200 cubits, and 100 cubits was the height over the head of the stonecutters. That's roughly 150 feet over their head. Now, from the very beginning of this aqueduct to the end of this aqueduct, um, the elevation only changes roughly 10 to 11 inches. The entire way, it is amazing. And it's amazing how they met each other. And there's all kinds of theories, but no one's exactly sure how they were able to accomplish that um, the way they did. Josh is going to share a quick video with us. Um, these videos really meant a lot to me. I, I, they're, they're quick, but it really helped me to get an idea of what we're looking at. This first video is the Beyond Spring. And um, it's not actually that blue. They just lit it up with blue lights, but... What I want you to see is this is cold 
water that comes out. Um, everything I read about it says it comes out in intervals. Um, but everything in this video says that I don't know. I, I don't know if that's the case. But that is the Gion Spring. What you just saw, that picture, is one of the most important places in the entire city of Jerusalem. That spring has been the source of what keeps this city alive for a long, long time. So if you follow that tunnel down, and I'm going to walk you through the tunnel, you won't have to do this for very long, but let's just kind of start walking through the tunnel in the second video. And I want you to get an idea of what this tunnel is like. Who am I watching right now? Okay. Are you holding the camera? Okay. But you get this idea, and, and what I love about this is everything above ground in Jerusalem, listen, has been buried under all kinds of civilizations, time, it's taken its toll on things above ground. When you go below ground, you're looking at a tunnel, walking through a tunnel, but you're looking at the pickaxe marks of Hezekiah's men. I mean, it's amazing to think about that. And so this is what it would be like walking through this tunnel at that time. Okay, let's, let's jump out of the video real quick. Okay, so that's the historical significance of the site. And I'm done with the historical significance of, um, of this. It would empty out, and this is all that has been uncovered of the actual Pool of Siloam. Um, because of property, problems with property and other different things, politics and money, uh, it has not been excavated yet. Um, but this is the edge of the Pool of Siloam. And you can just kind of see these stairs going down um, into the pool. And not so long ago, this was only in 2014, the very first um, water drawing ceremony took place. Since the times, the temple times, uh, when Jews came and did a water drawing ceremony. Now, what's the water drawing ceremony? This is super cool. So the most important feast in all of Israel was not um, um, the one we would think that we, we talk about a lot um, Passover. It, it would not be Passover. Um, in ancient times, the most important feast in Israel it was called the feast. It was called the greatest feast. The greatest thing was tabernacles. And as a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, Jews would go outside, and for eight days you would live in a, a sukkah, a booth. And part of the rule, part of the law, was the booth that you lived in had to leak. If the roof didn't leak, it was not official. It didn't count. And it was just remind, reminding of God, God is my protection, he's my shelter, he's my cover. As a part of the feast, the Jews would go down to the pool of Siloam. The high priest would come down to Siloam. And he would have a vessel and he would take water from the pool of Siloam and he would take another vessel with wine. And the entire procession would go, and, and, and in, this, in this picture, this is what's happening. They're singing songs, and they're crying out. Um, Isaiah chapter, um, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 12. I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you've comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. And the whole, they would all cry out with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so as a part of this procession, they come and they, they bring this water, and they walk through the water gate of the temple. 
And they come out before the altar and they pour the water and the wine together (coughs) next to the altar. A hundred years before Christ, they were doing the ceremony and the high priest emptied the water onto the ground instead of next to the, uh, on the altar. Uh, it caused civil war. Um, the Pharisees were crucified because of this. There was a nasty, bloody battle because he poured out the water on the wrong location. So from that point forward, whenever the high priest brought in the water from the Pool of Siloam to the temple, the entire crowd would shout out, raise your hand. And he was to raise his hand so in front of the entire community he couldn't hide why I was pouring it out. Now, why was there such a difference? Why was there such a battle over that? Because, and it gets into a complete off-topic subject, but because, one, the Sadducees were absorbed into tradition, uh, their traditions. The Pharisees were absorbed in their traditions. And this became just a battle of tradition. And it was so serious that they'd kill each other over it. And so this water-drawing ceremony... Um, would end, and that night you had what was called the illumination of the temple. As a part of the illumination of the temple, four massive menorahs were lifted up in the court of the women in the temple. And it would light the entire city of Jerusalem. And if you just have these lights, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees performed torch dances in the temple courts, and all night long they had what was called a festival of lights on that night. It's in that context that John is taking place. And this is what I want you to know. Now go to John chapter 7, and we'll kind of get into our text. I wanted you to have the history, the physical history of Siloam and this aqueduct. And the reason this was of such spiritual significance to them is because this spring outside of the city to them represented God as a source. And this water that would flow into the city and come down to Siloam was this fresh water that was from God, and it preserved them through physical conflict, through physical sieges. And so this water came to represent the coming Messiah and the coming when God promised he would pour out his spirit on man. And so when they took the water from Siloam and brought it up on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles and they poured it out, they were saying, God made us a promise that he's going to send the Messiah. He's going to pour out his spirit on man. And this is what they're celebrating. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 7, goes up and it was on the last and the greatest day of the feast that Jesus would cry out, um, and this is John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Here's Jesus, God tabernacling with men in the flesh on the Feast of Tabernacles that celebrates God tabernacling among men. He, simply by being there, is fulfilling the feast, God in the flesh. Then he cries out, and how about this, at this point of the ceremony, when the entire The entire audience, according to Josephus and historians, said they all fell silent as they watched the high priest approach and have this this water that he would pour out. This intense time, Jesus cries out on the last and the greatest day. You can hear his voice above the crowd, everything. That's me. This is talking about me. 
That night, in coming into John chapter 8, Jesus went and spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in the context of a water drawing ceremony, he said, streams of living water will flow from you if you believe in me. In the context of the, the lighting up of Jerusalem and their feast of lights, he said, I am the light of the world. And now we come into John chapter 9, and I want you to keep in mind, we are in the context. We're in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is, this is our text. Um, go ahead and begin in, in verse 1. As they went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must go and do the work of the one who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Uh, what's so interesting about this context is it's, it cannot be a coincidence that in the context of this water drawing ceremony, Jesus said, I'm that water. In the context of the feast of lights, he said, I'm the light of the world. And now in this context, he says, I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam, that place. Now, when you went to Siloam, you're sitting at the bottom of this long aqueduct that Hezekiah dug that was messianic, pointing to a coming Messiah, saying, I'm going to send salvation. And they anticipated this coming Christ. And here he is. How about this? At that end of the aqueduct, it was prophesied, Emmanuel will be born. On this end of the aqueduct, Emmanuel is standing there. And he says, go wash. And if you believe, and he, he talks to him about, I am he, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the coming one. Now, that's crazy. I was talking to Joshua about this this morning. We were kind of studying through the, some of this together. And looking at this, it's one thing to look at it and say, man, that's cool. This is amazing. And that's kind of the point, how Isaiah 7 ties to Isaiah 36, ties to Isaiah 12, and that ties into John 7 and the Feast of Tabernacles. It's amazing how it all pulls together. But here's the question, what's the point? What is Jesus saying when he comes and he shows how this feast is now fulfilled in me? And um, I wanted to, I have some ideas, but I wanted to give us some time and I kind of wanted to turn that over to you. What do you think that he is intending to do with this? And what is a message that he would be giving to the people and that we should glean from it, maybe. Any ideas? I'm giving you time to think. I don't want to rush you on this, but this is a t- it's a tough question. And I love it how Jesus did this when he taught um, or when he did something. He did something that make you think. And people were left confused a lot of times. What does that mean? What is the message that he's giving to this young man um, and specifically to the Pharisees? Think about that, and I want to hear your comments. Let me skip down in John 9, and maybe this will help us out a little bit.
Um, they find the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees find this young man that was born blind. And they start questioning him. And I'll just go ahead and begin in, in verse 12. Where is this, that man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been, born, had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples as well? Do you want to become disciples of Moses? We know um, his disciples too. And then they hurled insults at him and said, you're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does, the, does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue is what he's saying, referencing um, an earlier verse. The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that the blind will see and those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Um, I've, I've said this before, but I'm, I'm convicted of this. Um, uh, when I look at the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, there are two major themes that throw through, flow through the Gospel of John, water and light. And these two things represent this coming Messiah. In John 3, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a leader in the Sanhedrin, and he comes not questioning Christ. He comes with a confession. We know that you are from God. We know it because no one could do the acts you do unless he was from God. 
To me, my interpretation of John 3 is extremely dark. I think Nicodemus is saying this, we know you're the Messiah. We know you are. But they're cowards. And they would not be honest about their faith. They were trusting in religion and they were not trusting in a walk with God. They were not being honest with themselves. The very next chapter, you have a woman that comes in daytime, broad broad daylight. Her sin is exposed. And you have this theme of light that's happening. So here in this man's life, you have two groups that are juxtaposed again. You have this man that everybody looks at as a sinner. Well, man, you, you had to have, your parents had to have sinned. Somebody had to be sinned. You've been a sinner since birth because you were born blind. And this boy says, simply says this, I don't know anything about your religious debates. I don't know anything about, keep in mind, we're talking to a group of church leaders that just slaughtered each other because somebody poured the water next to the altar instead of on the altar. This is who we're talking about, right? And now we have a boy that's like, I've been blind since birth. Everybody considers me a sinner. And one thing I know, he opened my eyes. The same message, I believe, that Hezekiah faced, that Ahaz faced, is the same message that they're facing then and that we face today. And that's this. In Isaiah, it's a simple question. Do you trust God or do you trust man? And, and depending on God and the wells of salvation, and, and you think about Sennacherib, when he approached Hezekiah, it's a dark letter. I think it's Isaiah 37. I get those chapters mixed up. But you remember, he writes this dark letter that basically cusses out God. And he gives it to the people, and he gives it to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah has all of his advisors, and everybody's saying, you need to trust Egypt. You need to do something that's rational. You need to do something that makes sense. And as a king, he comes and he spreads out the letter in the tabernacle, in the temple. And he says, God, this is what they're saying about you. And he goes directly to the source, to God. And he says, I'm trusting in you. And God delivers them, wipes out 185,000 Assyrians that night. And the same thing happens throughout history. And then here we are in John chapter 7 through 9. And we have the same thing happening. In religion, they're singing the songs. They've come together, an entire nation, singing the great Hallel, singing the Psalms, lifting up God, saying, that's the God that came and tabernacled among us. This is the God that's going to pour out his spirit on man. And they celebrate this God. But then when he comes... Then when he comes, they reject him. And they would rather have their songs and their religion and their worship, but what they're rejecting is the one thing all of those things are pointing to, a relationship with God, a walk with God, and accepting him as my king kind of a thing. Um, That's the message that I'm drawing out out of these chapters. And where I apply that today is very important for the church and for people. Um, and I've probably brought this up too much because I've been so encouraged by watching the body here. But so often in my life, in my walk with religion, I have seen a lot of fighting over who poured the water next to the altar or as opposed to on the altar. We have crucified one another. We have done dark things. And in the name of religion, many people have lost a walk with God, something that is directly to the source. This is my God this is who I'm looking to. He healed me. He opened my eyes. That kind of a relationship with God. 
And so that's kind of what I draw out of the text is looking to this Messiah. And even in the midst of the greatest festival, somehow they missed him. But this man caught him. And Jesus sent him to the most sacred spot at the most sacred time of the year as a symbol of what he had done. So um, that's what I've got. Any thoughts or comments, questions? Yeah, Ben. Right. In in a spiritual context. And when Jesus came and taught, he pulled it all together in himself. Yeah. He had it all. Yes. In one person. And I think that not only did he do that, but he opened up um, spiritual mm-hmm. um, window that they had never seen before. Even right. Right. Yeah. And Jesus is sitting here thinking, this temple, these rocks, it's all going to be gone within the next generation. It's about to get wiped out. You guys need to focus on things that matter. Yeah. Right. Look beyond these things. Um, two two things, and in, 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 uh, it gets into a deeper study in Revelation, but in Revelation 11, it talks about two witnesses, and, and the references in Revelation 11 kind of point to Moses and Elijah, this idea of shutting up the sky so it doesn't rain uh, for three and a half years and so forth. But it's talking about these two witnesses being Moses and Elijah. The reason that's really interesting without getting into Revelation is that throughout Jesus' ministry, he said, these two testify about me. The law and the prophets, they are my witnesses. And he kept calling upon the law and the prophets as himself as the fulfillment of all of this. And so that's a great point. Yeah, any other thoughts? Right. 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 And was John, was John, was he, uh, was he just a fisherman? Right. That wrote a story or was he somebody who wrote about the fulfillment of prophecy? Right. And that's what, what we really do. The guy was just a fisherman. Right. He wrote about a story about somebody who ran around it for two, three and a half years and he fulfilled prophecy. Right. And this, this kind of helps explain that Jesus fulfilled prophecy of things that happened hundreds of years before that. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, has blown me away personally um, and why I love classes like this. There are different kinds of classes we offer, you know, as a church. 
some of our classes are very just, this is application, man. This is your life. This is where it comes. Some of this, this is just education. Sometimes it's just getting into the Word and, and trying to educate ourselves in it. And part of the reason why is because um, the Word of God, and this is just a personal thing to me when it comes to stories like this and what, what we're exploring in the series, um, it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly beautiful. I'm not even personally sure that when John was writing about Jesus, I'm not, I'm not convinced that he even understood everything that was taking place. Right. I'm not convinced that he even understood a lot of this and, and some of the ties. But the more you get into this and the more you study, you realize there are threads that flow from Isaiah through, throughout some of these things, um, locations and other things that make the Word of God brilliant, that make it absolutely um, incredible, a work of art. And that's one of the things that I kind of want to do and bring out in this class is, you know, the two goals that I have. When I step back and look at this, one is, um, like I said, I want to look, step back and say, what is Jesus teaching us in this? As the Messiah, they could miss him even while they were worshiping him. They could miss him even there and not receive him for who he is and not receive that. And that's something that I think is an important message to consider today about really looking beyond simply religion into a walk with God. But the second message is, is it also means a lot to me. It's looking at God's word. And it is a concern I have today. And I'm not saying I'm an educated person. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all. In fact, I, I struggle with that. I wish I knew more. But I do get concerned that churches today in general, a lot of Christianity, we don't have the education that we used to have. And I think that's a very serious thing because there are things that re- relate to our faith, that relate to really being certain about things that maybe we're missing out on because we're not really living in the Word to the degree that we could. Um, and, and I know that's sort of a different topic, but it's been on my mind a lot recently. In, early, uh, in, in the first century, Jews, their entire civilization was built around Torah. It was built around the law. That is what they did. They studied it all the time. It was not unheard of for a young man to memorize um, the first five books. A Pharisee would have memorized the 39 books completely. Every genealogy, every law, everything. They had it. That doesn't mean they knew God, but they did that. And today in our society, um, and that's why I really want to, classes like this should not be the only thing a church ever offers at all. But they are important for, ch- for the church today and biblical education to me, especially at younger ages, I think is critical. I think churches are missing that. And I think, uh, I think a grounded biblical education, even when it comes to memorizing books, the Bible, these kinds of things, is important. Now, you could become a Pharisee and miss relationship with God because you're focusing on this. Believe me, that's a problem. But we shouldn't neglect the former. You understand what I'm saying? And it is something that I really want to encourage people, and especially parents. Um, biblical education is a big deal. It's very important. And getting into studies like this where you allow God to flesh out something that is rich, that is beautiful, to kind of, uh, I don't know, help your faith, I think it's important. That's a side note, but hey, that's what was on my mind. <laughs> um, <coughs> and I'm so sorry, I'm so sick. I'm going to get over this, I promise soon. Let's close in a prayer. Uh, Father, I do. I just, I pray um, 
And just looking at this and looking at Salome and looking at uh, these deeper messages that you provide in your word. I pray, God, that we will not, um, will not look at your word, the history or anything else, and consider it irrelevant and, and superfluous. Um, but God, as, as children, as newborn babes, that we would, we would hunger and thirst after um, your word, every word that comes out of your mouth, that you would bring us into deeper waters, that you would nourish our faith. Um, I pray, Father, that you would remind us what it is to have a walk with you, uh, just a true, intimate, personal walk that comes straight from the source, straight from, uh, maybe in this illustration, the Gion Spring. Um, God, that, um, that when we consider church, that this is a place where water flows through us into others' lives, God, that we benefit from one another. But, but um, I pray that you would root us in a walk in your spirit. Um, that this water drawing ceremony and, and joyously drawing out water from the well of salvation isn't an annual thing with us. It's a daily thing with us. And I praise you for the presence of your spirit. I praise you, God, that this is something that is, and we, we didn't even get anywhere near to where you would, I know, want to bring us. But, Father, it's so true that we are living in the fulfillment of this. Your spirit is alive in us and through us and around us. And the Feast of Tabernacles, you promising to tabernacle with your people, is fulfilled in us, even on this evening, in this place. I praise you for having a family to celebrate that with. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you all. We have songs tonight? I don't...